We are beginning a new sermon series, and the sermon series is called Prone to Wander. Prone to Wander. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have ever gotten lost before, but you know, some of my earliest memories, the ones that actually stick, are memories of me wandering away from my mom in the grocery store, right? Some of you guys have had that experience. You remember it vividly. You know, you're in the frozen food aisle, and you look on the floor, and you see a penny, and you sort of try to pick up the penny, and you turn around, and you know, you grab some woman's hand, but it turns out that it's not actually your mom's hand, it's another woman's hand. You know what I'm talking about? That happened to you? And then you look around in the frozen food section, and you don't know where she is, and you're lost, and you're terrified, right? And so the truth is that happens to us as human beings, um, not only really when we're little, but even as we get older, we wander. We wander away uh, from the Lord. And in doing so, we put ourselves sometimes in scary or dangerous situations. And so the things that cause us to wander would be fear and wealth and pride and loneliness and idolatry. Today, we're looking particularly at wandering away from God because of fear. And we're going to be opening up the illustration today with a clip from a show called Mori Povich. Um, I don't watch, I, we haven't had TV really for a long time, so I don't know if this, this kind of TV is still on. But these are these talk show hosts that put people in embarrassing situations, and that's kind of what we're going to watch today. Uh, don't worry, though. Uh, the good news about the Mori Povich uh, show clip that we're going to be using today is there's a woman with a particular phobia called sedonglophobia. And uh, I don't want to give it away, but the good news is, for those of you who are troubled uh, by the clip that we're about ready to show, is that she, by the end of the, the show, is healed of her phobia. So it's good news, ultimately. But we're going to be showing a little part that's less good news. Let me, let me go ahead and pray, and uh, then we'll jump in. Father, thank you. Um, thank you for inviting us all here um, to stand in your presence. And Father, I do pray that we would be moved uh, by your glory and by your majesty. I pray that we would take our fears to you and that you would put your arms around us and that you would comfort us and that you would help us to feel safe and secure as we know that you are with us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so some of you guys may be troubled. Some of you may feel like that was really insensitive to put that woman up there. I'm sorry if that's the case, but she has a fear of cotton balls, a phobia of cotton balls. And even more precisely, even more than just having a fear of cotton balls, she had a, a particular phobia of a cotton ball man. And so that's why those two guys came out covered in cotton balls. But you see, by the end of the show, she had overcome her fear. So everything was good, right? Anyway, so some of you guys that have phobias and struggle with those kind of go, you know what? That's not that funny, actually. That's kind of, yeah, I get it. It's too close to home. Uh, but the reality is there's a big difference between fear and a phobia, right? There's a big difference between fear and a phobia. Phobias are persistent and irrational fears that excessively impair someone's ability to live a normal life. Somebody with a real cotton ball phobia wouldn't even go down the aisle at the grocery store where the cotton balls were because they'd be so terrified by them. Someone who has aviophobia is afraid of flying, and instead of flying to California from Georgia, they would take a bus, right? So there's a real cost. Someone who has ophidiophobia can't even watch a video about snakes without experiencing terror. And someone with alphoiophobia has a fear of marshmallows, right? And so typically, psychologists have treated phobias through something called systemic or systematic desensitization. In other words, you expose someone little by little by little to the thing that terrifies them. And so if you have a fear of marshmallows, they would say, hey, let's just look at a picture of a marshmallow, right? And I'll even put it across the room so you don't have to be too close to it. And then what they do is they may say, well, let's move the picture a little closer, 
And then what they might do is they might take somebody who has a fear of marshmallows to the grocery store, and they might say, hey, let's just stand at the sort of the entrance to the aisle. Let's not even go down there. And then the next thing you know, they're putting marshmallows in their hot chocolate and drinking marshmallows. It's, it's a desensitization. That's the idea. Now, psychologists argue that there are actually a small set of what they call essential emotions. Like these are emotions that you need and that fear, as opposed to phobia, is one of those essential emotions. Physiologically, the purpose of fear is actually to keep us alive. It actually serves to protect us. And so a healthy fear of heights keeps us away from the edge of cliffs where we might slip and fall and die. Fear of snakes keeps us away from cobras or from rattlesnakes. If you lived in the Amazon, fear of the dark would protect you from jaguars that hunt at night. And so there's a big difference between a fear and a phobia. Fear also, as we witnessed in the cotton ball scene there, uh, can lead us to do things that seem irrational and seem self-destructive, especially when they become full-blown phobias. The question is, what does the Bible say, not about phobias, but what does it say about fear? The first thing we see that Scripture talks about, and by the way, this is not going to be a complete discussion of fear because there's too much there. But the first thing we see in uh, the Bible is that there are certain fears in the Bible that are also essential, in particular, the fear of the Lord. And so I'm going to read a few verses that talk about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So the fear of the Lord is actually the beginning of knowledge. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. We're told to fear the Lord our God. Psalm 22, you who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him, revere him, all you descendants of Israel. Psalm 33, let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the people of the world revere him. So one of the things we immediately see in these verses is that the fear being described here in these verses isn't a fear of swift and merciless punishment or a fear of some capricious, untamed, and unloving power that God threatens to unleash upon his children. And the fear being described in these verses definitely isn't a fear of, that's brought on by our confrontation with a cruel or evil deity who delights in malevolence and making us suffer. Rather, the fear in these verses is associated with awe. Right? Each time it talks about revere Him and honor Him and revere Him. And it's an awe particularly at God's power and His transcendence. It's much more like the fear that I experienced about 17 years ago when Krista and I hiked uh, what's called a 14er out in the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in Colorado, and as we hiked up to the summit of a particular mountain, we were walking on what just felt like a razor's edge, and on either side, it looked like it dropped off thousands of feet. It was beautiful, and it was awe-inspiring, and it was somewhat terrifying as well. That's what's being talked about. C.S. Lewis writes about this godly reverence in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. The four Pevensey children, those are the kids that come in from England, have stumbled into Narnia, which is this world of talking animals, and it's under the control of a wicked witch. And they hear, they keep hearing about this person named Aslan, who's the king, who's supposed to make everything right, but they haven't met him yet. And so they're talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are their kind hosts, 
And they're trying to describe, that is Mr. and Mrs. Bieber, trying to describe Aslan to the children. And the children assume that Aslan is a man. They assume that he's a human king. And then Mrs. Beaver says this, Aslan is a, a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you, right? See, see the, the power, the awe-inspiring sort of awe of coming into the presence of this king, the lion. Now, our cultural narrative right now isn't particularly comfortable with an awesome or a powerful or a terrifying God, but intuitively, we actually know that that's exactly the kind of ruler that we need. We need one who is good and loving, but who also provokes fear. We see this kind of ruler in 1998, the version of Les Mis, which had Liam Neeson in it, if you guys are familiar with that, um, that movie. But in it, you have Jean Valjean, who's the mayor of the town, and you've got Javert, who is the chief of police in the town, and you've got Fantine, uh, who is, uh, is a prostitute at the time. There's one particular scene where Fantine is on the streets, and she's accosted by some men that uh, make fun of her and poke and prod her and throw her down in the snow, and they stuff snow down her dress. And, uh, and, and what's interesting is Javert is in the shadows, and he's hiding. And he watches these men do this to her in the public street. And, uh, and eventually, she loses her temper, and she sort of, you know, slaps at one of the men. And Javert immediately steps in, and he arrests her, which feels very unjust because of the fact that he's just watched these men brutally mistreat her. And then the next scene, we see that uh, they're in the prison, and she's standing before Javert, and he issues a sentence um, telling her that she's going to need to go to jail for six months because of this crime. And as they're beginning to take her away, Jean Valjean, who's the mayor, steps in. And he immediately begins by being kind, and he says, Javert, you, you, you didn't know this, but I was there at the end, and I saw everything happen, and some people explained to me what happened, and I know you didn't know this, uh, wink, wink, but um, it really wasn't her fault at all, so I'm going to ask you to let her go. And Javert uh, is offended initially and says, no, 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 you can't do that. I've made this arrest. And then Liam Neeson's character, Jean Valjean, becomes a little more strong, and he says, actually, I can do this according to these statutes in the law. And Javert again argues back until finally Jean Valjean becomes for- forceful and somewhat frightening, and he becomes imposing until Javert steps down, Right? And so what we see there is what was required in the fight against evil isn't just kindness, isn't just niceness, isn't just sympathy, but what's required is someone who provokes fear and awe. Our God is an awesome and powerful God who we should rightly fear. So not all fear is bad. In fact, fear of the Lord is essential to human flourishing. It is essential for us to flourish as human beings, that we stand in the presence of something that is bigger than we are, that we stand in the presence of an awesome God. Now, the second thing that we're going to look at this morning is that misplaced fears will ultimately destroy or harm us or lead us astray. There are any number of stories throughout Scripture that talk about the ways in which our fears, misplaced fears, cost us. There's Adam and Eve all the way at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 3, If you guys remember the story, they sin and they eat from the fruit that God's commanded them not to eat from, and uh, and then they hide. And here's what we read. We read, but the Lord God uh, came down into the garden and called to the man, 
And the man and the woman, of course, are hiding. And he says, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So the very beginning of the Bible, we see that we, in our fear, wander away and hide from God because we are afraid that He would reject us if He sees what's truly in our hearts. Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is another story about fear. It says, so Jezebel, and this is after Elijah had just seen God work powerfully and defeat the prophets of Baal, and Jezebel, who's the queen, sends this message. It says, she sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them, one of the dead prophets. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. We see all these stories in scriptures, uh, the scriptures about running away from God and our fear. Maybe uh, the most uh, memorable story in scripture about fear, however, is found in Matthew chapter 14, when Peter walks on the water in the storm with Jesus. So we're going to read beginning in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. The term there actually is literally the fourth watch, which means between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. The Greek word there means to shake, right? And so there's this idea of shaking internally. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, which again, the Greek word here uh, means be warmed. In other words, that internal shaking that you're experiencing, let something, uh, courage, warm you up and stop your shaking. He says, Jesus says, it is I, don't be afraid. And then Peter says this, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, uh, you read this story, and in defense of the disciples, I think we would all acknowledge that everything is scarier at night, right? Everything is scarier at night. Uh, When I was probably 15, Preston, Scott, and I uh, went camping by ourselves on the back of Paris Mountain. We hiked up to this mountain that was near my house, and we took our tent, and we took our little bit of food, and we set up our tent in the middle of the woods on the backside of this mountain, climbed in the tent, went to sleep, and uh, sometime in the middle of the night, it started raining. And at the same time it started raining, we started hearing this noise outside our tent, and it was this unnatural noise. And we spent the rest of the evening listening to this noise and pretty much assuming that it was a guy who was missing a hand, but it was actually a hook, and he actually had a body bag, and he was coming to get Like, we didn't know what it was. And of course, we wake up in the morning and in terror look up at, at where the noise was coming from, and it was a plastic grocery bag flapping in a tree, Right. Everything scarier at night. In this case, the disciples were on the Sea of Galilee late at night. Matthew 14 begins, interesting, the chapter begins with the beheading of their friend, John the Baptist. That's scary. And then it tells the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. That's uh, unsettling to say the least. So you might assume that the disciples on the boat in the middle of the night 
might have just been wrestling through these things a bit. They surely were talking about these events that had occurred as they made their way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. At some point in the darkness, a furious wind kicked up and buffeted, or literally in the Greek, tortured the boat. This was not a small storm. It was not a light wind. And we're told that they aren't right next to the shore either, but instead they're a considerable distance from the shore. They're out in the middle of the sea. So it's pitch black. It's the middle of the night. There's a storm that is battling against them, and they're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee when, out of the darkness, they see a figure walking towards them, right? This actually, this, this is more of a visual image. I wish you could read the Greek here because this is, the whole story is visual, right? It should be a series of paintings. So they see this figure walking out of them, towards them out of the darkness, and the text tells us that they are terrified. That's that word, terasso, again. They're shaking, and it says they cried out. Literally, the Greek says that they shrieked. It's actually an onomatopoeia word that means they shrieked, right? So they squealed, they yelled, they shouted, they shrieked when they saw what they thought was a ghost coming to them on the water. Uh, several years ago, we were in our living room, we were watching a TV show or something, and a little cockroach appeared on the wall behind the TV. And Krista, who is one of the bravest people I know, uh, but does have an Achilles heel and it might be cockroaches, she's like, please get that cockroach. And so, of course, being the brave husband who wants to protect my family that I am, I got up and I walked over to the wall where this cockroach was walking along the wall, and I got within a few feet of it, and I was going to like swat it with something. And right as I did that, it turned and looked at me with these red eyes. <laughs> and it, its mandibles flared out, and it had these little claws that went like this, and it flew at my face. <laughs> it tried to take me out. And for the sake of the gospel and the sermon, I will tell you that I shrieked. I did not yell, I did not shout, I shrieked, and then I proceeded to beat the cockroach into oblivion, right? <laughs> this is a true story, it really happened. Anyway, so clearly the disciples are terrified. They shrieked, right? They squealed. At that moment, however, that they scream, Jesus spoke out of the darkness and said, take courage or be warmed. <laughs> it's me. Or literally, again, he says, uh, be warmed, I am. Ego I me, I am. Then Peter, in a way that only Peter could, says, okay, okay, okay. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you out on the water. And Jesus says, all right, come on. We're then told that Peter stands up, he climbs down out of the boat onto the water, and he begins to walk in the storm with Jesus until he sees the wind. Literally, the text says, seeing now the wind charging. All right, see how this is a picture? Seeing now the wind charging. The wind and the waves are described like a bull charging a matador, or like a mother bear charging a terrified hiker. Or like the neighborhood bully bowing up at the kid with glasses, or like that big paper that's coming up and is due a week from Monday, or the wind and the waves, or like that conversation you had with your mom and dad where they told you that they no longer love each other, but they do love you and your dad's going to be moving out. The wind and the waves are like that diagnosis of cancer to your mom or your dad or your friend, 
that appeared out of the blue and threatened to destroy your world. Of course you're afraid. Of course we are. Of course Peter was afraid. We're all terrified. There's so much to be afraid of, so much to be afraid of. There's rejection and abandonment. There's being found out and being seen who we truly are. There's sickness, there's physical suffering, and not least of all, there's death. Terrifying things are charging at us all the time. So Peter, when he sees the wind and the waves charging at him, takes his eyes off of Jesus and he begins to sink. That's what happens, by the way, when we focus our eyes on our fears and we take our eyes off of the I am. We begin to sink into worry, into anxiety, into depression, into control. We begin to drown in our fears and we grasp desperately for anything that might be able to save us from drowning. We try to save ourselves, and in doing so, we end up enslaved by our fears. In 1965, um, there was a sergeant in the army named Charles Jenkins, and he had been stationed in, uh, around Korea. And in 1965, um, in the demilitarized zone, he took his rifle and he tied a white t-shirt around it, and he walked across the demilitarized zone into North Korea waving the flag, right? He was a traitor. He turned his back on the American army, the U.S. forces, because he was afraid. He was afraid that he was going to die. And uh, in 2004, he was interviewed, and he said, I knew 100% what I was doing, but I didn't know the consequences. He spent the next 40 years essentially as a prisoner of war. He was beaten. He was tortured. He was used for propaganda. Um, he had lived in a house that had no heat. He had to grow his own food, and eventually, in 2004, they released him back to America. But when he went back to America, he was court-martialed and ended up moving back to Japan to live because he just felt like he couldn't live with the shame of living in America. He, he was so afraid that he wandered away from the very thing that would have kept him safe, that would have given him a wonderful life, that would have enabled him to flourish, and instead, for 40 years, he lived a miserable existence in fear and in torture. Tolkien, in one of his lesser-known works called The Children of Huron, says this, a man that flies from his fear may find that he has only taken a shortcut to meet it. Only one thing, one person can save us from every single thing that terrifies us, and that is Jesus. Peter, the spiritual punching bag of the New Testament for all of his failures, and there are quite a few, he gets it right when it matters most. As Peter begins to sink, terrified, he screams, he shouts, he shrieks, Lord, save me! And we read in verse 31 that Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Or again, the Greek can be translated and caught him. So what do we do with our fear? We're so prone to wander so prone to try and save ourselves from the things that terrify us. So what do we do with all of our terror, with all of our fear? Like Peter, we cry out to Jesus. We take our fears to Him. We cry out to God knowing that He is with us and that He will save us and that only He can save us. I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'd like to invite you to stand. 
and we're going to recite Psalm 23 together. And uh, this is in the King James Version, because that's the way I memorized it when I was a kid at Bible school, but I figure this might be a good thing to try. So if you'll join along with me in reading Psalm 23 out loud. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for Thou art with me. Thy rod and Thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remain standing with me as we pray. Father, we are terrified, um, whether we know it or not. Um, I know that we've all created our lives into such a way so that we can try to avoid the things that scare us the most. And Father, we do that instead of trusting in you as our good heavenly Father who's with us and who's for us and who fights for us and protects us, Father, we try to fight for ourselves and protect ourselves and we try to hide from those things that terrify us. And so, Father, I simply ask that this morning you would enable us um, to stay by your side. And Father, when we are unable on our own to stay by your side, I pray that you would grasp us, that you would catch us like you caught Peter. And so, Father, I pray that when we are prone to wander, that you would hold us to your loving side. In Jesus' name we pray.